We're in Genesis chapter 17 today, and back in chapter 15 we saw the, the covenant of Abram established. Today we're going to see some development of that covenant in terms of how God interacts with Abram. Uh, and today is the day when we can, I have to concentrate to say Abram and not Abraham every time. Today is the day we get to make the transition to Abraham. That will be easier for me. And we also make the transition from Sarai to Sarah. But let's, let's talk. It, it, is, it is important um, what happened in chapter 16 to put some things in perspective here in chapter 17. So let me go back to what we talked about last time for just a moment and review. Sarai brings Hagar to Abram. And the idea is that out of a union between Abram and Hagar, a child will be born that through the customs of, of the servanthood of Hagar to Sarai and so on, that this can produce an heir and offspring uh, for both, in a legal sense, Sarai and Abram, because the child born of a servant in that way would be considered a surrogate way for Sarai to have an offspring that would be under her direction at that point. Well, Hagar becomes pregnant from the interaction with Abram, and out of that pregnancy, as it occurs, Hagar begins to despise Sarai. She sees Sarai in whatever, for whatever reason, it's not recorded, but um, you know, the jealousies that can occur between these kinds of situations and resentments and so on build up. Uh, Sarai in the culture would have been seen as a less than uh, full woman because of her barrenness. It would have been a mark against her. And so for whatever reasons, the scriptures tell us that Hagar despises Sarai. And Sarai goes to Abraham and says, hey, this is your mess, fix it. And Abram's kind of like, no, she's your servant, you fix it. It's kind of one of those deals. But uh, so Abram says, do what you see fit. Sarai treats uh, Hagar harshly. And so Hagar has a solution for that. I'm taking off. And in takeoff, she did. And in her trek back to Egypt, she was an Egyptian slave, slave, an Egyptian servant slave to uh, Sarai, but God sends an angel to her, and uh, this angel recognizes her difficulties. Promises are made to her. One is that she will have a male son. His name's going to be Ishmael. He'll be a donkey of a man. He'll be against everyone, and everyone will be against him, but he will have many descendants. And Hagar then responds as directed. The angel tells her Go back to Sarai, be her servant, let her be your mistress, her, your boss, if you will, and, and live out your servanthood to her. And uh, Hagar worships God, in, and, and even the well there is named uh, in honor of God seeing her. The name of that um, area, that well, is the, the God who sees and she goes back, and Ishmael is born, and at that time, Abram is 86 years old, okay? So that's just a real thumbnail sketch of what we looked at last time. And so this week, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 17. And so let's read through that. I'd look for a volunteer to read Genesis 17, or part of it. You can stop partway through if you want. Somebody else can pick it up. So who can do that for us? When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. 
for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offsprings after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. <clears throat> God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she be shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? <clears throat> Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house, bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him <clears throat> Abraham was 99 years old when he circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin that very day Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised and all the men of the house, those born in the house and those bought with the money from the foreigner, were circumcised with him. Thank you. Appreciate that. Long passage, but today there weren't a lot of those names and so on that sometimes become a challenge, so that was good. So um, we start out in verse 1. Very clearly, Abraham, Abram is 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to him. And so, uh, here's a question. How old is Ishmael right now? 13. 13. He was 86 when Abram was born. So, throughout, or when Ishmael was born, uh, Abram was 86. I'll get it said correctly yet. And so, when we think about this, I mean, in the back of your mind, here is Abram has lived 13 years with Ishmael as his... <coughs> I'm sure Abram looked at him as his offspring. I'm sure that he and Sarah, Sarai both looked at this child that was growing up in their midst as being the answer to the father of many nations and so on. So here's Abram used to living this out. But so when Abram's 99, Ishmael's 13, this, the Lord appeared to Abram and... Uh, a, an interesting question to answer is what has God told Abram and Sarai so far about Ishmael and his position? He's not their 
Well, he hasn't told them that yet. At the, at the start of this story, of this passage in chapter 17, now I'm not saying Abram and Sarai didn't have an idea. I mean, I don't know what Hagar might have told them when they came back. So we don't want to get too carried away with, with our speculations. But in terms of what's recorded, so far Abram and Sarai have been given no direct communication from God about the role of Ishmael. So you can imagine they probably have hopes built up and expectations and anticipations. And so, so that's where we are. And so God appears to Abram. So appeared, there's some sort of a presence, some sort of a visual thing probably going on. And God declares, I am God Almighty. That's uh, El Shaddai, which really means uh, the same thing as what's reported here. But the El part is the God part of the word. And uh, the El Shaddai, uh, the Shaddai part would be most powerful. So here's God saying, I'm here, I'm the most powerful God. I am the God of power would be a better way of saying it. I don't want to say the most because there's no other gods. But uh, so God comes to him and says, I'm, 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 this, is, this is powerful God in front of you. Walk before me and be blameless. So he's calling Abram to a high standard. Were there specific things that God had in mind about what that meant or what he was directing Abraham to? Abraham to be we don't know but what we do know is he's saying your your role in life is to set an, a, a stellar example and to do it in the eyes of God in verse 2 he says uh, something that we have to think about a little bit in verse 2 he I'm sorry the rest of verse 1 he says no verse 2 I will establish my covenant between you and me and I will multiply you exceedingly well, that's the way the New American Standard says. Does anybody have something else that is not future tense? Because most of the versions seem to look at future tense here. Has God already established a covenant with Abraham? Yeah, we did that back in chapter 15, right? Um, in looking at the language here, it could have been without stretching things been translated I have established my covenant with you um, but the future tense part of it makes a little bit of sense in that he's going to ask Abraham here we see the words coming that is a part of that covenant the sign of the covenant to establish the practice of <laughs> circumcision and so there is some things coming about the exercise of their covenant together. But God is clear here, this covenant will be between Abraham and God. Now he's going to expand that just as he did in the initial covenant. Because if we, matter of fact, we need to do that. Go back to chapter 15. I had it down a little bit later, but we ought to do it right now. Um, toward the end of the chapter, we get the pronouncement of the covenant in verse 18. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, for the river of Egypt, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he lists all the people that, that are a part of that. So there is definitely, in the establishment of that covenant with, with Abraham, Abram at the time, it's clearly toward the descendants are specifically named. And, and here he focuses more on, on Abraham, but it's, it's a, a continuation of the promises that he's made previously and the covenant that we saw established in chapter 15. And so uh, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. That's no new news, is it? God has been promising this to Abram all the way through his encounter from the time he left Haran until now. You're going to be um, the father of many nations. And so this is reiterated here in verse 3. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him. So let's talk about the falling on his face first. 
This is the first time we see this expression of uh, honoring of God listed in the Old Testament. This is the first time we see somebody falling on their face. And yet, throughout the Old Testament, this is the common way that men show their allegiance to a great person or to God. Most of the Old Testament encounters are men falling on their face before God. There are a few where they fall upon their face before leaders and people that clearly they are in subjection to. But Abram fell on his face. He, he, he's taking a humble position, and God talked with him. It sounds like he stayed fallen on his face, although we're going to see him mentioned in this way again, falling on his face. Uh, so he goes, God goes on to talk about this covenant in verse 4 and that is God says as for me behold my covenant is with you so God is making this personal Abram this is personal between me and you this is my perspective I'm doing it it shows the sovereignty of God he's already declared his power uh, he hasn't said Abram are you willing to be in a covenant with me God has said you we're in a covenant here it is this is the agreement and it's with you. You will be the father of a multitude of nations. And that's significant when we look at verse 5, because no longer shall your name be called Abram, but you will be called, but you shall your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And there it's interesting, the word Abram is exalted father. And there's a lot of ways you could talk about that. But when he becomes Abraham, the change is he's the father of a multitude. When you say exalted father, nothing needed to change for him to potentially be called exalted father. Now, in this case, you know, he was named by his parent or whatever. But any, at any rate, when we look at this, it just says an exalted father. Many of us may be in this room are in our family's exalted fathers. Maybe some of our kids know us too well and they go, well, I used to think that. But anyway, uh, you know, that, that can be backward looking. But when he says, no, your name is now Abraham, a father of a multitude of nations, this has to be forward looking, right? So far, he's the father of one that doesn't make a multitude of nations. So this name goes along with um, what is Abraham's future in the eyes of God. And just, just for a few minutes, let's just take uh, a look ahead. So what nations is he going to be father of? He is going to be a father of Arab nations through Ishmael, right? What other nations? What? Israel. Israel, and unfortunately, because of Israel's misbehaving, they wind up more than one nation as well. They are split in half, ultimately. Um, what else might you say? Well, there is a spiritual father of nations here, too. The Gentiles uh, will be grafted in as a spiritual nation, right? We're a spiritual group of people. And it is through Abraham that we have Christ. And through Christ that we are a people of God's own choosing, right? A royal priesthood, a holy nation. And so there are multiple nations that will come. Um, and through Isaac, we see the Jews, through Ishmael, the Arabic, and through Christ, spiritual. So we did well with that. So, no longer Abram, but now Abraham, and a father of many nations. In verse 6, he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. What, what kings can we talk about coming from Abraham? David. David, before David, I mean, all of them, you've got um, Saul, 
and then you've got Solomon, and you've got all of those Jewish kings, right? What other kings could we say came from Abraham? Christ himself. We could also go over and say there certainly were Arab leaders and kings. But, of course, we also then get to Christ, who's the king of kings, is out of the lineage of Abraham, uh, also through the lineage of David. Now, keep in mind, as Abram's hearing this, we'll see in a little bit what his focus is on. I mean, we look and say, um, you know, Isaac was the head of the Jewish nation, the, the beginning of, of that through Abram's lineage. But that's probably not what Abram's thinking at this point, or Abraham. I will establish my covenant in verse 7 between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. So what did God just say here in this verse about how this covenant is going to carry forward? There's a key word in here about the covenant. What do you suppose that key word is? It's everlasting. What does that mean? It's Christ eternal. Well, it's through Christ eternal. But, but let's look at the words just a little bit. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. What are the details of the covenant? In, in this sense, they, Israel... <coughs> We know God's looking forward to the covenant going through Isaac, right? And as that covenant goes through Isaac, here's the simple question. Has the promise to the Jews ended? No, it's an everlasting covenant between Abraham and his descendants. So I will give in verse 8 to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And so as we look at that, there are definite promises made to Abraham and to Israel that are valid yet today. It's an everlasting covenant. And I'm not going to be able to take the time here, and I didn't prepare to do it either, so I would be a little short on putting all the pieces together for you. But we could go look at the book of Revelation and see what happens in those descriptions and see that there will be a day when Israel from Jerusalem will look upon him whom they pierced. So we can anticipate from everything we see in the book of Revelation, the nation of Israel continues until the return of Christ. Yes, there was a blank period uh, from about AD 70 until about 1948 that Israel wasn't there, but God kept his covenant is there's another blank period that's discussed in the scriptures we even saw it in the time of giving the covenant back in chapter 15 there are 400 years that abraham is told that his offspring are going to be enslaved in egypt but then they'll come out of egypt and come and take the land so it's not without interruption but it is a promise in for everlasting promise that they will be the ones that own that land of Canaan. And, God said, I will be their God. And I think that's an exciting thing to think about as we look at everything that happens through the time of Christ, the coming of Christ, his discussions about how the practice of Judaism is going to end. He's got the parable of the garden I'm sorry, the parable of the vineyard where he talks about how you had it, but that is going to change. It's going to shift because you killed God's servants as they came and would ultimately kill his son. And so there is a transition there, but at the same time we can see that God intends to be their God and restore himself to that position, and we see that fulfilled in coming in the book of Revelation. Verse 9, questions, comments so far? Okay. In verse 9, God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which I shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you 
Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And it keeps on going about every male who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant born in the house or who is bought with money in uh, bought with money from a foreigner who is not one of your descendants, a servant born in your house or is bought with money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. So here we have clearly God making a sign of the covenant and a point of obedience that the males in Abram's household at the time and any that joined his household either through birth or through being purchased, if you will, uh, are to be a part of showing the sign that in this group of people, this is our sign of the covenant, the circumcision. Questions? There's a question I, I wonder if someone is thinking right now. How does this sign of the covenant fit in with us? Was this something that that is applied to us? Yes, ma'am. Well, that's true. That's true. And that's an interesting thing to talk about because uh, Paul will make it clear that it's not about the physical act. You can be circumcised and still not be a Jew, right? Not all who are of uh, not all who are of Israel are of Israel is a statement Paul makes in uh, chapter uh, 9 of Romans. But just to make it clear, so if anybody goes, hey, wait a minute, this is an interesting thing that God made very important. Go to Galatians 5, 1 through 6. This is probably the best summary passage in the New Testament. <coughs> Galatians 5, 1 through 6. So just, just, just to make sure we're thinking, who wrote the book of Galatians? Paul. How stringent of a Jew was Paul in his early days? He was a Jew among Jews. He even viewed the Christian community that was coming up as a heretical, anti-Jewish community, anti-God community. And so in the desire to see this upstart group who were um, defiling what it meant to be a follower of God in his eyes, he, had, he was very engaged in capturing Christians and bringing about their end um, in various ways through imprisonment, probably through death. It was at his feet that the people who stoned Stephen threw their coats, their cloaks. So, um, so here's Paul from a very Jewish start in life writing to us about circumcision in specific as um, a specific as well as generic way to talk about the rules of Judaism. So let's read Galatians chapter 5, 1 through 6. Who would read that for us? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith, we eagerly await through the scripture the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. 
so when we look at this passage, Paul has made it quite clear, hasn't he? That the role of circumcision was an identification with the covenant with Abraham. And when he talks about circumcision here, he's talking about you're going to try to go back into the, Abra the world of Abraham, keep all the laws that came down through Exodus, and you're obligated to keep them all. And by the way, it's clear you can't. That's why we needed Christ. Um, the book of Hebrews is very clear about how the blood of bulls and goats did not truly take care of moving sin out of anybody's life. But it was through faith that righteousness was reckoned. We've already seen that from the book of Genesis, that when Abraham believed to him, it was reckoned righteousness, that he was righteous in the eyes of God. Through faith, not through some earned compliance with a set of laws, and that would be true throughout the Old Testament. So Paul here is saying, if you go get circumcised so that you can somehow try to earn your position as a follower of God, as a righteous person, it isn't just circumcision. When you do that, you're buying into the whole thing, and the whole thing is a burden you cannot bury, cannot bear. In verse 5, I think it's very clear where he's headed and what he's trying to tell us. In, I'll say verse 5 and verse 1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. What were they set free from? And it was the burden of the law. Therefore, keep standing firm and don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Slavery to what? The law, because it is a burden they could not bear. And so he says, as Christ, we have a full sacrifice for our sins. Our sins are truly washed away in Christ. And so the role of circumcision, we have to recognize, was a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham. And under Christ, we don't live under that covenant. We live under the new covenant through Christ. Questions, comments, thoughts? Yeah, there was a whole group following Paul around. We call them the Judaizers. That that's what they were doing. They were coming to the churches and saying, well, Paul told you the truth in this way. You do need Christ, but before you can have Christ, you've got to become a Jew or be a Jew. And so there was a group of Jews doing that, doing exactly what you said. Um, I don't know that every Jew was there, but certainly there was a group of Jews that were putting a lot of effort into it. And it was a real problem for Paul. He was constantly having to deal with several different heretical views but this was a chief one and of course they talk about it in terms of circumcision because that's the key identifier that was established right here that we're reading about here in chapter 17 of Genesis good comment any other questions comments thoughts okay well let's continue uh, in verse 9 um I'm sorry, not verse 9. Uh, verse 16, 15. Uh, in verse 15, God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. And so we get to the name change for Sarai to Sarah. And uh, when we look at the meanings of the words in, in uh, Hebrew, Sarai was a name for princess. We talked about that some weeks ago. Uh, but now her name will be Sarah, which is noble woman or um, a woman of, of heritage in the sense of uh, royalty and so now she's going to take on a name that shows that she is the mother of royalty of, of the leaders the kings and so on which is exactly what God said um, that there, she's going to have a son and so she will be a mother of nations just as Abraham is a father of nations and she will be a mother of kings of peoples 
that will come out of her lineage. And so she now has a similar kind of declaration about God's blessing upon her that Abraham had been given as a blessing. Now, verse 17, I think, is, to me, um, I don't want to say it was the main verse, not at all, but it was the verse that I went, oh, man, that's kind of cool that he put that in there. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, so Abram wasn't devoid of all sensitivity about his own behaviors in front of God here because he didn't say this out loud. Will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Uh, this was something from earthly perspective was inconceivable. There's been a lot of speculation about this time when people live much longer than they do now. Um, about well, what was the productive cycle like? How you know? But clearly, in Abraham's day, by the time you hit a hundred-year-old man and a ninety-year-old woman, that's well past apparently. And so he kind of laughed to himself about that. It sounds like the way this is written, he probably laughed out loud. But maybe that was just to himself as well. I don't know. But this seemed inconceivable. And so he's got that that he's laughing about. He's also got a 13-year-old son that he's been probably pouring himself into that uh, is there and loved by him. We'll, we'll see that in subsequent chapters. Um, and so he, he brings this up. Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. What does Abraham mean by that statement? Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Wasn't Ishmael already alive? What does this mean? Under his blessing? Under his blessing? Be accepted. Be accepted as, as my son. Be accepted in, in a role here, meaning the role, probably, of, of the role that God has just declared will come out of the child born with Sarah. Um, and was God surprised by this? No, you can't surprise God, can you? He, he is omniscient. Uh, and so uh, he, God was not surprised, but he had a, a clear response. Verse 19, God said, no. Very clear. But Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. Let's get specific. You'll call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him, exclusive from Ishmael. That's the what's strongly implied if not outright stated here I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him God is making it clear right here that this covenant that's being established <clears throat> yes there are promises for Ishmael but Ishmael is not this child of the covenant he's not the one that's going to be considered the descendant line with regard to the covenant this covenant is going to follow the path of Isaac. And that's where your descendants will be named. Now, as for Ishmael in verse 20, God says, I will, I, I have heard you. So he's respond, he said, I, I heard you. I, I am, I'm, I'm responding to your desires, your request. And what I'm going to do, being aware of your request, now, God had already talked somewhat to Hagar about the blessings to Ishmael, right? So he didn't make them up right here, although we get a little more detail. I will make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. And we're going to come back and talk about that, but I want to get this but statement in first. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, so it's not a covenant with Ishmael, my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. So God even finds out that at not necessarily 12 months away, but in this same season next year, you will have the son Isaac. Now going back to the promise, he shall become the father, meaning Ishmael, of 12 princes, and I will make him a great nation. Well, I, I worked on understanding that. 
verse about historically how does that come out. And um, we actually see the listing of the 12 children born to Ishmael in Genesis 26. In trying to run down a definitive history of these 12 princes, I didn't get very far. And I will admit, after a period of time, I said, okay, I'm not finding it, so I, I kind of backed out of it. But uh, indeed, Genesis 26, we will see the 12 sons of, of Ishmael listed. So that is yet to come. Any, any comments at this point? I have a I may not have an answer. We'll see. Well, he, he was sent off ultimately, but there's some competitiveness between the boys that we'll see in the book of Genesis coming up. Uh, now, 13-year-old difference, so I use the word competitiveness. Typical sibling stuff, particularly when there's a promise involved. Now, you can imagine being in a household where um, it's known there's promises involved, and it'd be like being a a child, I suppose, uh, in the fam royal family in England, and it's like, you're going to be the next king? Well, I don't think so. You know, this, you know, whatever might be going on there. But so there, there, there is tension, and uh, God makes it clear the solution to that. As we study Genesis, we'll see that Ishmael is cast aside, asked to leave. Uh, so yeah, that that's coming. Um, anything else? Okay, um, we do know that these, that the um, offspring of Ishmael tended to leave south, live south and east of Israel, mostly in the land of Arabia and in the Sinai Peninsula area, uh, just for whatever that might be worth. We come to verse 22. When he finished talking, that is God, when he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. And I don't think we ought to ignore the what's being said here in terms of went up. I mean, it's like clearly in God's departure, he's, he's showing his high position. Um, you know, we think of God in the heavens and the heavens are always up. And so, so God went up from Abram, Abraham. <coughs> and I think it would be difficult to relate to or under-emphasize this interaction with God. I mean, there, he is hearing God. There's some presence of God that he is taking in. It says God appeared to him. Um, this would be a pretty significant kind of encounter. We've seen these before with, with Abram and um, Will, and going clear back to the garden with Adam and Eve. So God did interact with people what was his form? We don't know. Interestingly, with Adam, he walked in the garden. So um, Adam heard him walking in the garden. So kind of an interesting thing to think about that I'm sure none of us have experienced. And then, of course, you go forward to Moses. No one can look on me and live. So, you know, what was this? Well, you've got the words here, and that's really all we're given. So what starts happening in verse 23? Then, meaning immediately when this is over, uh, Abram took Ishmael his son and all the servants who were born in his house, all who were bought with money, every male among the men of the Abram's household, Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God had said to him. And so Abraham wasted no time in fulfilling, excuse me, fulfilling the obligation that God had given him with regard to, this is the sign of our covenant. You and your male members of your household will be circumcised. Uh, and so that was done. It's further emphasized that uh, Ishmael, in verse 25, his son was 13 years old. That's what we calculated at the beginning of our discussion when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. In the very same day Abraham was circumcised, and Ishmael his son, 
So that's done. It's in the same day. It's all getting done. And all the men of his household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. So that became part of being a part of Abraham's household, not just in his direct lineage. So take two or three steps back from this and look at it from a bit of a distance. What, what are the things that we can see and learn and take note of for our own benefit living today apart from the circumcision, apart from the covenant with Abraham but still in the new covenant? What are the kinds of things you can see in here that are important things to recognize either about the character of God or what it means to live under his direction? What are some big picture things you can see here? Yeah, I know. Yes, God did call Abraham to be different from the world. There was a sign that was to be a part of being under the covenant. Okay, that's a good one. What else? Yes, sir. So, so our people who are descendants of Ishmael wrong in claiming their their that they that their lineage and fatherhood and blessing goes back from Abraham. No. So, how do we fit that together with the blessing of Israel? And it's really pretty straightforward. Um, they do trace their lineage back to Abraham, justly so. That they have been made into a great group of people, by great I mean large, and established, goes back to promises that actually came to them through Abraham, through Ishmael. But the difference comes to be when the fact that they still are not the recipients of the blessing of the covenant of Abraham. And what's the big contention in the Arab world right now regarding Israel? This is a fairly simple answer. Yeah, Israel is there. That's the problem, that they exist in multiple ways as a people, as people who claim their lineage through Abraham, and they hold the land of Israel for the most part. There's some pieces and parts they really will have ultimately full control over that they, they exercise governance over uh, Gaza, the bank, and, and, and uh, Jordan and that, but they kind of have to let the Arabs have their own way with it to a point. But that's the issue and it goes right back to the covenant because that's the cent- a central piece, maybe not the central piece, but that's a central piece of the covenant. And so uh, we talked earlier about the competition between Israel and Isaac that's going to be coming. That conflict is still central to what's going on. Is it because it's not, it's not a firstborn thing? Well, Well, you know, I, I don't know when Ishmael later on will get kicked out, what he told his sons and whatever. They clearly weren't, they didn't get along with each other or anybody else. Um, but what, what became their tradition, I don't know. Uh, they believe they're the rightful heir of Abraham, and you could say firstborn, I, I don't, but I don't know what they in their minds look to, or in, I haven't studied out their religion or teaching enough to know what they look to, but they clearly clearly see themselves as at least equals and certainly in most cases superior to Israel. They would they, they don't they don't stop and go, well God gave a covenant to Isaac and so that land's theirs. Let's let's us let's go play with our toys. Those are Israel's toys. No, it doesn't work that way. Uh, that Israel exists as a direct affront to them. 
and oh by the way go back to chapter 15 I'm sorry last week chapter 16 Ishmael will be a donkey of a man he will be against everyone and everyone will be against him so he's living up to what God declared about his future that's, that's the future that the Arab people have well, we're, we're, we still got just a little bit of time. What I wanted to direct you to here at the end, and these are great conversations and so on, but I want to direct you to the faithfulness of God as one item. God is absolutely reliable. We've just now talked about Israel exists, and Israel exists, in my opinion, not because, I mean, God used world events, to draw them back together to the land of Israel, but he also said, this is going to happen. Um, and just like God took them out of Egypt and brought them to the land of Israel, despite their foolishness and their rebellion and their lack of faith, and they had to march around the desert for 40 years to get that worked out, God established the nation of Israel out of his promises. And I believe in 1948, God reestablished the nation of Israel to complete the promises he made right here and in previous chapters and in chapters to come. And so we can see that God is faithful. The other thing that I want to emphasize that we see in this passage is the eternal perspective that God has and that he makes everlasting covenants. He, he isn't saying, well, for the next several hundred years, here's what's going to happen. No, he says, this is an everlasting covenant. This is a covenant that's not going to end. Your descendants, Abraham, will be great and many, and specifically to the descendants through Isaac, they are going to have the land of Israel, and I will be their God. The restoration of the I will be their God, I think, is best foretold. The picture is best given to us that upon Christ's return, they look on him whom they pierced, knowing that one they pierced was their Messiah and Savior. And that's the beginning of a return to Israel in a true sense. I mean, are there Jews today that show allegiance to God in some fashion? Yes. But unless they accept Christ, there's still Jews today that have rejected the Messiah just because they're showing allegiance to God and reading the Torah and so on, it still leaves a gap in their salvation. And we could, I mean, there's a lot we could study about how God puts a veil over their understanding and unless through Christ that's pulled back, that's, that's a problem that they endure because of their rejection of the Messiah. But that everlasting perspective, I think, is very valuable to us. Did everything come up peaches and cream for Abraham's descendants? No. They had many, many difficult times. Times in Egypt, times that they made difficult for themselves by their lack of faith as they transversed the, the land to get to the promised land of the Canaanite area that they would claim. They made mistakes because they compromised on what they were told to do as they retook the land. They made agreements with people that they were told not to, that they were to extinguish them as a race, and instead they didn't want to fight them in a battle, so they compromised in agreements, and that caused them troubles throughout time. The troubles never seemed to end. They had a peak time when David was king and part of Solomon's reign, but those were really the only really truly great glory days of Israel as a nation. And from then on, because of their sin, God brought judgment on them, and many different things happened. And by the time you get to Christ, they're a land occupied by the Romans. You know, it's just, just a never-ending, difficult time in this world. And we ought to expect similar difficult times. We, we live in a world that is not, um, as a whole, God-fearing and God-worshiping. And so we're going to see, have seen through history, we'll see in the future history, difficult times. It is to our advantage to see the everlasting perspective of God. When we read the promises in the New Testament to us, 
Some of the things we might even hesitate to call promises. Well, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. I'd just as soon turn that promise aside. But there are, there are things said, maybe not maybe in the format of a promise, but things we're told to expect. In this world, you will have trouble. But there's also a lot of really good verses about how we should respond. When you're hauled before kings and people in power, don't worry about your preparation for in those moments, I'll give you the words to say. That's a promise. So as we go through difficult times, it's not that God was kind to people at one era and now he's being unkind to us in our era. No, the everlasting promises of God apply to us day in and day out. Um, one I like to turn to, Hebrews 13.5, which the first part of it is very relevant to us today. Let your way of life be free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. That's a directive to us, but then he gives us a reason for he himself has said he will never forsake us. Um, and no, uh, I can't say it. Let your way of life be free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never forsake you nor leave you. And so, you know, God will be with us as we go through the troubles of life, and that has a, an everlasting perspective to it. Something that we see today that comes out of that is that God is not done with the lineage of Abraham. There are still promises valid and still some to be fulfilled. And the other thing is circumstances. Abraham's 100, Sarah's 90. For God to see his purposes fulfilled, he is not dependent on circumstances. Abram and Sarai tried to fix the circumstance problems. We're past childbearing age. We need to ha we're, we're promised a great heritage out of our offspring. So the circumstances won't let me be the mother of them, so let me bring you Hagar, and let's do this. And um, as mankind tries to work through circumstances, we often create situations that we will later wish we had not done. <coughs> but God, in his sovereignty, to see that his purposes are fulfilled, is not dependent on circumstances. He can say to a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman, you better fix up the nursery. Not something any of us would say circumstantially was likely. I, I knew a man one time that had raised his family, and he and his wife, they had been married many years and stayed married, and he was getting ready to retire when his wife, at about 60, I think, came home and said, guess what? We're going to have a baby. He worked for my dad. He uh, poured a lot of the concrete. I'm, I'm sh fairly sure that the, uh, well, I don't know, this one was made late enough, it might not be. Back in the 70s and probably pushing on 1980, he was the man that poured almost all the putt-putt concrete because he could do it and it, you know if you look at from a concrete man's perspective how much eye work is involved he was extremely skilled so instead of retiring he wound up building putt putts um, and then he worked for my dad doing some concrete flat work for a while too his name was curly he was a fun guy that man was tired when i knew him he had a seven-year-old at home and it was about five years past when he thought he would be retired and so um, he's, he told me, and I was a teenager, so you know our perspectives of life were a little different in terms of what it meant to be married and all that and have families. But he told me, he said, I was only happy for about 30 minutes. And then it took several years before I was happy again. And he says, that kid's starting to be fun now, but for a while it's like, what have we done? <laughs> well. Sarai, Sarah, or Sarai, got there a lot quicker than Abraham, because Abraham's not, at this point, what have we done? But he'll get there too. And so, circumstances are circumstances. We ought not try to make them work out for God's plans. God's given us plenty of things he's told us to focus on and to do. And we ought to do those. That's not trying to manipulate circumstances. That's just being obedient. 
But when we look at something and say, I don't see how God's promise is going to be fulfilled here, so I'm going to take matters into my own hands. That's generally a really bad idea. Questions, comments? We serve an everlasting God that really loves us and cares for us, despite the fact that he's called us to live through difficult times. As a matter of fact, look at James. He uses those difficult times to bring us to where he wants us to be. Let's pray. Father, we certainly don't have the perspective or the wisdom to truly look ahead and see what's coming with accuracy and to see what it ought to be. All we know to do, Lord, at our best is when we follow you. Lord, lead us through wisdom from above, through your word, uh, through our determined obedience, through the power of your spirit that would enable us to be obedient. And even, Lord, lead us through our failures that we might know what it is to fully experience the grace of God. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for what you did with Abraham. And Lord, we look forward to the day when these things are fulfilled for Abraham and his descendants because too, Lord, those things will be being fulfilled for us. We look forward to the new heaven and the new earth and the eternal kingdom to come. It's through Jesus' name we pray. Amen.